What are your thoughts on countless high-rise apartment complexes in Seoul? They were built to support urbanization and rapid population growth, but they've become really overwhelmingly a concentration of power, money, brains, culture. The metropolitan area houses nearly half of the country's population. Do we not need to perhaps think a little bit more creatively about our housing solutions going forward? We welcome Professor Edward Glaser, leading urban economist at Harvard University, author of the New York Times bestseller, Triumph of the City, How Our Greatest Invention Makes Us Richer, Smarter, Greener, Healthier and Happier. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me on. There's certainly no doubt in my mind that Seoul is indeed a city, but what is your definition Seoul is not only a city, Seoul is one of the world's truly great cities. Uh, it, it's hard not to be overwhelmed by both what Seoul is in terms of the, the forest of skyscrapers, but also the role that Seoul has achieved in the Korean miracle. Because when I think about the transformation of Korea from a place of really acute poverty 60 years ago to a place of prosperity today, Seoul has played a completely outsized role in, in making that happen. And in some sense, this soul experience helps answer that question, because for me, city isn't a political term, it's not a purely statistical term. Uh, cities are the absence of physical space between people. Cities at their heart are density, proximity, the closeness of humanity to one another, which enables us to work together, to collaborate, to have those chains of creativity which have powered humanity's greatest hits for thousands of years. I remember being told years ago as I was growing up in the UK that uh, a place had to have a cathedral in order to be a city. And I know there were some notable exceptions to that, but clearly the definition has moved on since the Middle Ages. And you describe cities... But, but you're right. That, that was the traditional uh, European definition. It did have to have a cathedral. That's, that's exactly correct. Right. So, But if that's a feature, it, it's not quite what drove the, the urban environment. What What was behind this greatest invention, as you've called it. So if you want to take us onto a, a medieval detour, I would say that there are really, you know, two different flavors of cities that emerge in medieval Europe, and we can still see echoes of them today. And in Seoul, in fact, we see echoes of both sides of them, one of which are, you could call them imperial cities or political cities or, or clerical cities, but they're cities that are driven by the presence of a leader of great power, often a monarch, as in Paris, or an emperor, as in Rome, but sometimes a bishop, as in, say, for example, Trier uh, or Winchester. Then the other cities are, are trading cities, commercial cities. Such cities would be Bruges, for example, or, or Ghent, uh, or Venice, the cities that excelled in connecting different areas and enabling humanity to trade over continents, over civilizations, over, over oceans. Um, those two cities, the city of trade and the city of power, coexist in Seoul, which is both the capital or the, the center of a great country, but also a city that is so built on commerce and industry. So in some sense, it brings together Bruges and Paris in a single, in a single place. Cities often share some geographical common threads, like, for example, bodies of water, rivers, that sort of thing. Originally, that, that would make sense, wouldn't it? People to spring up around where they could access clean water. Now they seem to be almost um, iconic features rather than necessities. Yes, and often more, more pain than pleasure, right? So, you know, the, the growth of New York City is unthinkable 
without New York's harbor and, and its island status, which gave it such, such ready access to the sea. Today, the Hudson River, the East River that surround Manhattan are nothing but a, a traffic nuisance, right? So uh, they're pleasant to look at. But those, those natural resources were, as you say, once absolutely vital. I mean, in 1815 in America, it cost as much to ship goods across the entire Atlantic Ocean as it did to ship them 30 miles over land. And so we shouldn't be surprised that we clung to our, our watery lifetime because of the, the advantages of access to water. Those things have become much less important, and yet the cities remain stuck where the history determined them to be. And, and we retrofit our cities for, for new ages. And what you're saying that strikes a chord because of the challenges that we have in coexisting with nature, particularly polluting nature. And we know all about that in this part of the world. In your book, you wrote about greening places in China and India, for example. Can you describe some of the challenges and opportunities? Oh, it's, it's enormous. And, and, you know, there are two things that are going on simultaneously in, in the world of, of urbanization in India and China, one of which is they're becoming, in, in the case of China, they have become industrial powerhouses. And as they, as they move from poverty into uh, middle-income status, uh, they use a lot more energy and they pollute a great deal more. Um, the other process is the concentration of people in cities. Uh, that's actually fairly benign from a pollution point of view, because when you think about carbon emissions, when you think about energy use, we just do much less of it if we are over us, if we live more closely together. My own work with UCLA uh, environmental economist Matthew Kahn finds that the carbon footprint of families that live in tall towers and cities are just much lower than equivalent families who live in suburbs, both because of, of shorter traveling distances and because typically living in apartments means less energy use than living in, in big homes. So uh, cities, I think, are, are best seen more as being part of the solution to our environmental challenges than part of the problem. Uh, one example you could give is if the great growing economies of, of China and India see their per capita carbon emissions rise to that scene in the sprawling United States, global carbon emissions will go up by about 130 percent. If they stop at the level seen in, in wealthy but hyperdense Hong Kong, global carbon emissions go up by less than 30 percent. So we all have a lot to gain if they, if they build up rather than sprawling out. So high-rise apartments, not such a bad thing. We can at least encourage designers to be more creative, can't we? The, the thing we is, certainly can. We have conglomerates who run apartment construction here, and they tend to go with a very uniform appearance, even if the interior can be rather lovely. What, I mean, how do you change that? So I think it's very hard to try and manage aesthetics from above. I would be very loath to say what we really need is for the mayor of Seoul to micromanage every architectural detail. But I think there's a lot to be said for thought leaders, for you know, uh, people in the arts, for people in all sorts of leadership positions, to actually speak out in favor of good design, to make the point that, in fact, Korea isn't a poor nation in, anymore. It should be a nation that prizes aesthetic beauty, that prizes architectural creativity. And I think the arts are really an area in which it's best to allow freedom, but at the same time for all of us to argue for having the most you know, creative, varied, interesting artistic expression that you can. Talking about population condensed all in a certain area, as you did before, we've got over 25 million people living in and around the capital city, which spreads out all the time. It accounts for nearly half of the country's total population. Should we be trying to create more space to accommodate new households? You, you've got to at some point limit how high you can go. Well, if you're building high enough up, you don't need to use very much space, right? So in some sense, we limit our 
geographic footprint as we build up. Um, you know, I'm an economist, so I don't actually believe that there's one recipe for human happiness, and, and different people like living in different spaces. I think there's a lot to like about the Korean model that has enabled families to come and find an economic future in Seoul, but it's it's a good thing that there are other models as well. And I think great cities are archipelagos of neighborhoods, some of which are tall, some of which are short, that give people choice, that give people options. Another feature of this is redeveloping areas that are completely inappropriate for high-rise construction right now. And there is this disparity here between north of the river and south of the river. South of the river, we had the opportunity, I think, for forward planning. It's a lot of the uh, rear thinking that's been necessary north of the river. And, and, and people get upset when you remove these neighbourhoods that have existed for decades. Are you very sensitive to that issue? I think, unquestionably, cities need to keep memories of their past. And in some cases, architectural treasures are just as precious as the Mona Lisa or any piece of artwork hanging in the Louvre. Um, but on the other hand, we can't let the past be a straitjacket for urban change. Uh, it's not my place to make any particular comment on what historic preservation needs to occur in Seoul or not. But I will say in the context of New York, the city that I grew up in, I think that there are many parts of New York that it's absolutely crucial to preserve, but it's also, uh, at least in my belief, correct, that New York has, has done too much blanket preservation of fairly architecturally mundane neighborhoods just because they happen to be more than 30 years old. So I think we have to remember that there's always a trade-off, that protecting the past isn't free. We're making it harder to build more space to accommodate families that want to come and, and find their future. Um, and we just need to make trade-offs that are sensitive, uh, weighing the benefits of, of protecting old buildings with the, the costs of, of doing so. And we also just need to make good judgments architecturally about which buildings are really important to save and which ones aren't. And sometimes it goes beyond buildings. It's, it's more about the flavor of a neighborhood. Uh, but it can increase polarization even within a city. You can have uh, really glamorous, clean, modern areas and, and other areas that are older. That's natural. But sometimes those older areas fall into disrepair. And we see this on a wider basis as a country, rural villages turning almost into ghost towns. And, and that's a global phenomenon to a certain extent as well. How should central and local governments work together on that? So uh, I think the, the starting point is you have to ask yourself whether or not there is, you know, whether or not the best way to help poor people is to help poor places. So ultimately the objective of government should be to empower and, and enable individuals to live out great lives. And sometimes that involves saving places, and sometimes that involves enabling exit or, you know, focusing on the education of the kids to find a brighter future. So it's, I think, crucial to start off without thinking that the goal is to, to bring every place back, even if we're never willing to forget any single child. That being said, uh, I think in the American context, I have moved from being fairly hostile to any place-based interventions to being more open to thinking that we, we really do need to do more for troubled parts of America. And I'll just give a little bit of my logic on that in the U.S. context, and, and we can decide whether or not we think it fits for Korea. One of the things that's changed is America has less mobility than it did in the past, so 
moving out is less common. There's much less less propensity of, of poor places to catch up with rich places than there were uh, in the past. And I think most importantly for me, we've moved from a world in which the differences across space were income to a world in which the differences across place are joblessness. And I think joblessness is such a long-term endemic social problem that is associated with so much misery when you take people who are jobless for years, decades, um, and we see such persistence of joblessness in many low-density, non-urban parts of the U.S. But I think it really is necessary for us to try a bit stronger medicine. I, I think the right answer is not to artificially bribe firms to locate there, but to make sure we have policies that are well targeted towards place. And, uh, for example, you could have a stronger employment subsidy. So this is a subsidy that encourages firms to hire workers in areas that are high unemployment where there are more workers on the margin that of working and not working than you would in areas with low unemployment rates, for example. Yeah, well, some of that certainly will ring true here. And already... We've seen that the pros and cons, the potential pitfalls of conglomerates dominating the population of certain regions. Thank you very much, Professor Clayser. Wonderful. Wonderful. Thank you. Great to hear from Professor Edward Glaser, then, leading urban economist at Harvard University. But if you want to check out that book, it is a New York Times bestseller, Triumph of the City, How Our Greatest Invention Makes Us Richer, Smarter, Greener, Healthier and happier. Now, the time's at 7.45. Let's get to our news bite with Kim Hae-young.